This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next-generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rubin. Today, I'm joined by Sam Jeske, Senior Fellow here at MP, and Fred Guttenberg. Uh, Fred Guttenberg is the father of Jamie Guttenberg, who was tragically killed at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School shooting two years ago now. Fred has become a tireless advocate for gun safety and is also a proud Joe Biden for President supporter. Fred, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, guys, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So again, we so appreciate your time. And, and let me say that even though this tragedy was over two years ago, we're, we're both really truly sorry for, for your loss. We can't imagine how your life has been turned upside down. Um, but even so, we really appreciate your advocacy work uh, that's come in the aftermath of this. So I, I feel like the whole world knows you as the father of Jamie Guttenberg and as a gun activist. But right. what was your life like prior to becoming a full-time activist? Did you ever think you'd be working in the political arena? Not even for a second. Um, you know, and, and listen, I'm glad you mentioned the pandemic because I just want to start by letting people know, listen, I've been through worse than what we're going through now. And so I have a very different perspective on this. Focus on staying healthy. Focus on doing what the experts tell you to do. Focus on being okay. Take advantage of the extra time with your loved ones. You'll be all right. Um, but going back, listen, before Jamie was killed, um, from I was always a working guy. I worked for Johnson & Johnson from about 91 to 2004. And then from 2004 to 2016, I owned a business. I owned Dunkin' Donuts franchises. And when I sold my business in 16, my brother at the time, who's a year younger, was sick with cancer from 9-11. Uh, my brother ran the triage for the World Trade Center, was in the World Trade Center when it collapsed, and then spent the next 16 days at Ground Zero because amazingly, he survived where he hid out. Uh, I tell you this because um, when I sold my business, he was very sick, and he died in October of 2017. So to answer your question about where I was at and what was happening when this happened to my family with Jamie, I was four months removed from mourning the loss of my brother um, to another American tragedy. Wow. wow. And, you know— when he passed away, um, for the first time in my adult life, I had nothing to do. I had my business prior, and then that year between selling my business and my brother passing away, I spent going back and forth to New York almost every week to help my brother. So when he passed away, I had nothing to do. I've never, ever, I'm in my 50s. I've never had nothing to do, and to be honest, I am not good at it. Um, I'm a guy who needs to wake up in the morning and have a purpose, a plan. So sure. 
uh, I had to figure out what I was going to do. And my wife begged me and I listened to just take the remainder of the year off. Um, so basically, November and December of 2017, I didn't do much. Uh, and I wasn't good at it. I found myself very antsy uh, and needing something to do. So come the new year, January of 2018, I was searching. I started looking for another business. I started looking for jobs. Um, I just started looking for a purpose. And then my daughter was killed. So, mm. you know, sometimes life works in weird ways. My lifelong best friend says this is the craziest thing. You spent all of January and February up until the day Jamie was killed talking about how you, how you needed a mission and a purpose. And then it fell into my lap because I was a father who never put his voice. Listen, let me take a step back. As a parent, our job over and above any other job is to protect our children. And I did everything I could, or I thought I did everything I could to protect my child. But you know what? I never spoke up about gun violence. I never did that. And the guilt I live with every second of every day because I did not do anything to protect my child from the threat of gun violence, because I didn't speak up, because I didn't put my voice into it when it was happening to other people, is something that I will live with for the rest of my life. It's probably what drives me to do what I do now. But since she was killed, um, my life has taken on new meaning, a purpose, and a mission to destroy the gun lobby and save lives, to, to restore civility in this country and to give people the, the ability to walk the streets, go to places where you worship, go to malls and send your kids to school without the fear that, you're more, that there's a chance you might be shot. We have a gun violence death rate in this country right now of about 40,000 per year. I want that number reduced in half. And that's still too many, but we have to start. And so this is what I've dedicated my life to. Um, I sent my daughter and my son to school on February 14th, a day of love. I sent them out the door, rushing them out the door, actually, because they were running late. And so... My last words to my children that morning, while it wasn't, I love you, it was, get out the door, you got to go to school, you're going to be late. I was rushing my children to school where my daughter was killed and my son heard it happen, okay? So if people want to know what motivates me, why I can't stop doing what I do, that's why. So you mentioned your wife and your son, and you know you've obviously you found a new mission for yourself. Um, I can't imagine how, how they're coping. Is there a semblance of of new normal or or anything like that with uh, with your family? You know, at Jamie's funeral, two people said something to me almost exactly alike. One was the rabbi at Jamie's funeral, and the other was Joe Biden. And they both said to me, the rabbi said it to all of us, Joe Biden said it to me personally, we don't move on, we move forward. Every day in our house is a process of us trying to move forward. 
trying to figure out ways to move forward. We're not doing it the same way. You know, the other thing about Vice President Biden, um, and it blows me away that he did this for me, and another Parkland dad who met with him maybe a month after this happened, he talked to us about what it was going to be like in our homes. He let us know, and nobody else told me this, that we all are going to, we all grieve differently. And that in our home, we should know that because he wants to make sure that we're prepared for grieving differently and taking on the work of also finding ways to grieve together because that's how we're going to survive this together. And I mean, he came with statistics. He came prepared to talk to us in a deep way about our personal relationships because he wanted us to be prepared and to know and to have a strategy. Nobody else said those things to me up until that point. And he was so correct. And I talk about it all the time now because it was what he said to me that night that actually allows us in our home to be able to grieve in our own unique ways, but also making sure we're doing it together. I'm glad you mentioned Vice President Biden. We're going to we're going to swing back to him a little bit later um, for some more questions. But so as someone who lives and breathes fighting the NRA and the gun lobby at large, what would you like people to know about how difficult it is to move the needle on something like gun violence? You know, what I want people to know um, is it's a lot less difficult than people, I think, thought. I think there was this aura of fear that they brilliantly perpetrated on this country and on elected leaders that was a load of BS and it caused people to back down from them. You know, every time the NRA would say, you know, it's too soon to talk about this stuff, you know, people would back off. Every time the NRA would say, you know, uh, Second Amendment, people would get afraid. And I think what we showed coming out of Parkland is when we are as equally relentless taking them on, they don't know how to respond. When we Listen, when the week Jamie was killed, okay, I kind of put out the message. I did not want political people in my house because I blamed elected people for the failure that got us to this place because they didn't take on the NRA and the gun lobby. Um, and long story short, one political person ended up stopping at my house. I've ended up developing one of the best relationships that I have in my life with him and his wife, and that was Ted and Jill Deutsch. Um, but I didn't want political people in my house. I thought back then the way to get something done on guns wasn't going to be working through elected people because they'd already failed. It was going to be to destroy the lobby that held them hostage. And so the day after Jamie was killed, I spoke at a vigil in Parkland. Um, I went to this vigil just to attend, to be with the thousands of other people who were there. I just felt like I needed to be with my community. And the mayor asked me when I was there if I wanted to speak. I said, sure. So I went up on stage. I've never spoken like that in public before, but I just let it rip. And 
I went home from there and I said to my wife, and I'll clean it up because I don't know what I'm allowed to say on this, so I won't use the curse word. Uh, <laughs> but I walked in my house that night and I said, I'm going to break that effing lobby. I said, that's what I want to do. I want to break that effing lobby. And from that day forward, that was my mission. And I would say to anyone who would listen, just go after their money. Go after their money. And what a lot of people don't know is um, Dick's Sporting Goods. Uh, I was friends with their VP of marketing at the time. They had a personal connection because of that to what happened in Parkland. And so the business decision that they made has transformed this fight because it has shown that you can do things and make decisions that the NRA is against and thrive, okay? The state of Florida, three weeks after this happened, the state of Florida, this is not a liberal state. This is not a blue state, but we passed gun safety against the wishes of the NRA. And you know what? It's working. And it's not been an affront to anybody's Second Amendment right, but it is saving lives. And the NRA didn't want it, but we did it. So all of a sudden, you have these cracks. And now you see cities and states all over this country passing legislation. And the NRA, as this happens, continues to get weaker and weaker and weaker. And their only response, because they're losing the legislative battles now, is they keep filing lawsuits. Well, guess what? They can't afford all the lawsuits they're filing. So you combine that with their loss of their ability to sell insurance products, um, thanks to people like Governor Cuomo, and they are on the ropes, okay? Now, that said, they still have the ear of the White House, and that is something that is a really big ear to have, um, but we're going to defeat that. This, this election, we are going to defeat that. They are going to pay a price. We flipped the House on this issue. We're going to flip the Senate on this issue and other issues. And we're going to take back the White House. And I am beyond confident that gun safety for Americans is going to be one of the top three voting issues. There will be a mandate to deal with it. And it's going to get done. So so let's let's dig into that, right? Let's say that we all work our asses off and we flip the Senate and we take back the White House. What pieces of gun safety legislation would you want to see pushed immediately yeah. through a, a Democratic trifecta? Well, listen, let's start with what's already been passed in the House. Let's get real background checks. You know, let's start there. That alone will save lives. But I would take that a step further and extend background checks to ammunition. Um, and we've currently got Jamie's law uh, introduced in the House and the Senate, which seeks to extend background checks to ammunition. The reason why that's so important is you already have 400 million weapons on the streets in this country, many in the hands of prohibited purchasers. If you're a prohibited purchaser of a firearm, you are by law also prohibited from buying ammunition. The problem is there's no requirement to do a background check on an ammunition-only purchase. So you could have your gun illegally. You could have just stolen it. You could have just used it in a crime that police could be looking for you, and you could walk into a gun store and buy additional bullets to continue using it. 
because there's no requirement for that background check. So let's get background checks on ammunition and on weapons. That's number one. Um, we've got to ban high-capacity magazines, and we've got to ban assault weapons. We've got to repeal PLACA. And this is one of those things that, again, if this Senate does flip and Joe Biden is president, because I've already spoken to him about it, that is going to happen. If you, if you want to make a permanent change to the way guns are dealt with in this country, from both those who currently own them, but also to the manufacturing and retailing in the future, being able to sue and hold people accountable for their decisions will change everything. And right now we can't. I can't sue the manufacturer who I know had a marketing plan that was targeting people like the kid who killed my daughter. They had a marketing plan for people like him. We can show it in a court of law if we were allowed to sue, but we're not allowed to sue. These manufacturers are producing these weapons at a rate way beyond what they say is the need of that weapon. They call it a sport weapon, okay? They're producing way beyond what would be a sporting requirement. And so they end up on the streets. They end up getting used in crimes. They end up getting used to kill people. And these CEOs and manufacturers know that's going to happen. They're doing nothing to prevent it. They and the gun lobby are actually behind a marketing strategy that is leading to the death of people we love. And if we repeal PLACA and we put them on a court of law and we put them under oath, it's the same thing that happened to the tobacco industry. When those tobacco CEOs had to admit our product is addictive and we know it's going to kill people. And yeah, we were selling it this way anyway. Okay. They're a shell of their former selves now ever since. That's what we need to do. And so those are the big highlight items for me. Listen, there's a lot more. We've got to get more CDC funding and recommendations based upon it. There is so much. We need to deal with the reality now of these ghost weapons. Um, you know, which, by the way, this administration created the ghost weapon issue. They are the ones who have pushed really hard to allow these to become easier to do. Um, and we're going to have to deal with that. And when you say ghost weapons, are, are you referencing like 3D printed well, firearms 3, or something? 3D printed, but you also have weapons where you can buy certain components in a store here. They're unserialized. And then you buy the rest of the components online, unserialized, and you complete the build on your own. And mm. so you have people, listen, there was the, um, uh, the Saugus High School shooting in California probably seven or eight months ago, I think. That was a, done with a homemade weapon, unserialized, and anybody can do it. And we need to put an end to things like that. What's up, everybody? We're going to take a quick break from the podcast and let you know that Millennial Politics is now on Spotify, Stitcher, the Google App Store, and iTunes, basically anywhere you get your podcast. If you like the show and like hearing from previous guests, such as Mayor Pete Buttigieg, former presidential candidate Andrew Yang, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and Ayanna Presley, and many more, make sure you subscribe, give us five stars, and leave a review. High ratings and good reviews are some of the best ways people can find us. 
And if you want to see us continue doing this work, we hope you'll consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. So we've we've discussed the NRA, we've discussed lobbying, we've discussed the gun manufacturers. Um, how do you deal with, because there, there is a, a grassroots movement of people who feel really strongly about their gun rights and the Second Amendment, right? Sure. Um, and so how do you deal with those people and getting them to at least change their mind on certain issues or persuade those people? Because I think a lot of people view those people and say, oh, we're never going to change their minds. They're so hard set on gun rights in the Second Amendment and they'll, they'll never come around to our side. What do you say to those people? There, listen, there's nothing in the gun safety steps that I proposed that's an affront to the Second Amendment. None of it. Uh, and so if you look at Florida, for example, we've passed gun safety measures in Florida, not as much as I'd like, but we passed a lot. Red flag laws, I didn't mention them before. They're saving more lives than anything else that's been passed, okay? And, you know, a lot of the NRA says, oh, that's an affront to our Second Amendment. No, it's not. And in Florida, as I say all the time, there's not a single legal lawful gun owner in Florida who ever thinks about the gun safety legislation that we passed because it has no impact on them. You, they're, they're, not, they're able to pass a background check. They are, if they're okay with a waiting period, they're able to use their weapons the way they want, and they don't have an intention to kill. None of the laws passed in Florida have any impact on a legal lawful gun owner. So what I tell people is a well-designed law for gun safety that will save lives should not have any impact on a legal lawful gun owner. And I'll give you an example. Ted Cruz, Senator Cruz, I had uh, uh, about three, four, five months ago sat with him for 90 minutes with Alyssa Milano and another gentleman by the uh, name Ben Jackson. Um, and Senator Cruz uh, live streamed our conversation. I thought I think he thought he was going to own us, but he didn't. And when he started in on the Second Amendment stuff and saying, "Well, he wants the ability to go continue to buy weapons," and you know, he's like, "You want to take away my right to do that?" So I asked him a question. I said, "Senator Cruz, can you pass a background check?" He said, "Yes." I said, "Have you ever beat your wife?" He said, no. I said, then what are you worried about? And he didn't say another word, um, at least on that topic. So the reality is this country has got it, the Second Amendment. I get it. We have people who do love their guns who would never use it in a, in a deadly way. I'm not looking to interfere with those people, but I am looking to do everything we can to keep weapons out of the hands of those who we know, who we can predict, might use them in a violent way. And we are able to do that, you know? So, so I'm tired of the Second Amendment. It's a bastardized interpretation of the Second Amendment that has gotten us to this place where we are. 
you know, they usually, with, in addition to the, quote unquote, the Second Amendment, um, which, by the way, is well-regulated, supposed to be, they always talk about the slippery slope garbage. And if you start doing anything for gun safety, while this law may not really hurt my Second Amendment rights now, it's a slippery slope, eventually you're going to. Listen, we've been on a slippery slope, okay? And it started a couple of decades ago, you know, when you know you used to have a ban on assault weapons, that went away. We've seen the abundance and the spreading of open carry and stand your ground laws now over the past 10 years. We've seen a loosening of gun regulations in this country. And so that has actually put us on a slippery slope that has gotten us to the place where we are now, where we have 40,000 people a year dying. I'm not looking to take away rights of a legal lawful person, but I am looking to save lives. And so to me, that is not um, an impossible task. Most reasonable, responsible gun owners actually agree with my position. I think that's a fascinating insight about the slippery slope in the wrong direction, right? Like their fear is that we restrict more and more, but in reality, it's just loosening more and more and it's going in the opposite direction. And there is a, a loud minority of people who view inconvenience as oppression. And I think that's where a lot of the pushback to yeah. any type of background check or anything else comes into play. Um, so no, I, I totally agree with that. And that's a, a fascinating insight. And I hadn't thought about it like that. Um, I want to transition now a little bit to go back to talking about Vice President Biden. So sure. in addition to being a, a big activist on gun safety, it sounds like you also have a personal relationship with the vice president. So, so what would you like to tell other people who may be skeptical of the vice president, how he's impacted your life, why you support him so much, and why you think he's the right man to beat Donald Trump in November? You know, it's funny. People think I have a personal relationship with him um, because of the way he's treated me with humanity, civility, and decency, and, I, and it's impacted me, but I don't really know him. So here's the relationship that I have with him. Um, 10 days after Jamie was killed, I got a, a phone call from a blocked number and I just, I didn't answer it because my phone was ringing off the hook. And if I didn't know who it was, I wasn't answering. And I listened to the voicemail and it was vice president Biden. And he said to me, I'll be calling you back at 6 PM. So when you see a blocked number at 6 PM, please try to answer it which he did, I was, I couldn't believe it that he was putting, that he was even putting this effort into it. He was on the train going from Virginia to New York for an event for his son, Bo Biden's foundation. And I think he and I must've been on the phone that night for 45 minutes. Um, just two guys talking. It was the craziest thing. And he wanted to know about Jamie. Um, he really wanted me to talk about her. He wanted to talk to me just to know more about my wife and my son and, and about me. Um, and he asked me what I wanted to see done. And so we talked about it and we talked about the assault weapons ban. Listen, he led that last fight. Okay. We talked about PLACA. Um, and, 
you know, he said to me, if there's ever anything I can do for you in this, um, you always should feel free to reach out. And um, he then invited me to an event that he was going to be doing in Florida a few weeks later uh, in, uh, in Palm Beach County. And he said, I could bring another one of the Parkland parents with me. And so I did. And it was at somebody's house, uh, you know, a very nice house up there that was going to be hosting a fundraiser. There had to be a couple hundred people there. And the vice president and his team come in, you know, they're doing all the shaking hands. Um, and all of a sudden, um, he motions to his aide to have myself and this other Parkland parent go to a private room. Now, he's got a couple hundred people in the house. I'm thinking, you know, we'll just shake his hand and we'll let him go do his thing. And instead, he sat us down. And again, I, it was about 45 minutes that he sat there speaking to us. About 20 minutes in, I said to him, you have a house full of people. You need to go. And he said, this is more important. Okay, this is the vice president talking to us this way. And during this conversation, it was me and one of the other parents. Now we're talking about each of our families. He's also talking about his family. He's talking to us about how he has gotten through grief. He talked to me and the other parent about mission and purpose. He talked about how the pictures that make us cry now will eventually bring a smile to our face. But then he also, this is what I was telling you guys earlier. He says, I want to get a little personal with you. And he asked his aide to leave the room. Okay. Now, the only person now who was in that room with the vice president was me and the other parent. And the aide is like, are you sure you want me to leave? And he's like, yeah, because he wanted to have a personal conversation with us because he was going to talk to us about our marriages. And he wanted us to know the statistics on marriage after an event like this. And not because he wanted us to be nervous and scared. He wanted us to be prepared. It was shocking that he was going this deep with us and taking this time and consideration to help us this way, but he did. And then that was it until about a year later at the first presidential debate in Miami. Um, I was actually there as a guest of Eric Swalwell. And at the end of the debate, I see the vice president talking to one of the other candidates. Um, and I'm, I look up on the stage and he looks over at me. I didn't, I mean, I wasn't sure if he recognized me or not, but he motions me over to the stage and he knelt down and he grabbed my hand and all the cameras now, photographers are all capturing this. What they weren't capturing is what he was saying to me. Um, and I've talked about this publicly before because it really gets to what an amazing guy he is. He remembered this conversation that he had with us back in Palm Beach. And he wanted to know how I was doing, how my wife and son were doing, if any of the things that he shared with us and spoke to us about um, were helpful. And just wanted to thank me for being so engaged. I, I was blown away. And so those are the three highlight moments that form 
my personal relationship with the vice president. Um, beyond that, I have become, as anyone who follows me on Twitter knows, intensely supportive of him. I did that commercial for him when I hadn't yet endorsed him. And now I will do anything for him to help elect him president. Because yes, I've seen him in action. I get this man's humanity. I get his decency. I guess his civility. And I know this country is going through a moment right now with such hardship, pain, and loss that he is the only person capable of leading us forward from this. Brett, th- thank you so much for that, that personal insight and those powerful stories. Um, our second to last question, can you just tell our audience a little bit about the work that your nonprofit, Orange Ribbons for Jamie, does? So Jamie's favorite color was orange. And the night she died, her dance sisters, is what I call them, all came over our house wearing orange ribbons. And they made the next day like thousands of orange ribbons for us to hand out at Jamie's funeral. And at her funeral, I talked about this being the start of an orange ribbons movement. I didn't really know what that meant at the time, but I knew I was the orange ribbon was going to symbolize my fight for Jamie. About three weeks later, I was wearing my orange ribbon, and a gentleman stopped me and asked me what it stood for. And I told him about my daughter. He said, do you know that's also the color of the gun safety movement? And I said, I did not know that. (laughs) Um, So I was blown away at the connection. And I went home to my wife and I said, you know what? We need to start our foundation and call it Orange Ribbons for Jamie. This is what we need to do. I said, the, the gun safety has a color. I want the orange ribbon to be the symbol. So the original thought was, when we started, I just wanted to make this the symbol of the gun safety movement. But what Orange Ribbons for Jamie has become about is honoring things that were important to my daughter in life, but also educating on why her life was cut short. That's the mission of Orange Ribbons for Jamie. And so we've given back to many causes that matter to my daughter. My daughter wanted to be a pediatric physical therapist. She even knew the place that she wanted to work at called the Paley Institute in Palm Beach. They do surgeries on kids with limb deformities. We've made a donation there. My daughter was dog obsessed. We've made a donation to the Humane Society. Um, We've donated towards dance scholarships. But the thing that I'm really most proud of that we've done and that I really hope we become a living memorial to Jamie is that Jamie will forever be sending kids to college. Uh, My daughter will never, ever, ever get to go to college, but we started a scholarship program um, for what we call kids of all abilities because Jamie's mission and focus in life was always on kids who weren't as fortunate as her, kids with special needs. She volunteered her time for these kids and she was gonna ultimately work with these kids. So our scholarship program has three buckets. Um, The first bucket is for a a kid who wants to go to college for a major where you're going to be helping other people. Maybe it's occupational therapy, physical therapy, or medicine, something like that. But you have to have a background in community service, because Jamie did. And I want to see you have at least one year of dance, because Jamie did. 
The second bucket is for a kid who is going to go to school to major in dance, uh, but they also have to have a background in community service. The third bucket is the kids of all abilities part, because you don't normally see scholarships for kids with diagnosed special needs who may not go on to a typical four-year traditional college education, but they're going to go on to some post-high school education. And we want to make sure we're making our scholarship available to those kids as well. So we started this scholarship program. Um, this year's fundraising was really geared um, very much towards that. I hope every year going forward, we can grow that effort. Candidly, fundraising has become a lot harder than the time of coronavirus. Um, the last give back that we did, because my daughter and my wife and I do believe in helping anyone who's in a position of need, is we donated um, $10,000 to Jose Andres' World Central Kitchen, who was doing um, masterful work around this country and the world, helping those who are hungry, making sure they eat. Um, and so we wanted to make sure that we were helping to support his effort as well. So we're doing a lot of different things. Um, I've also started- Amazing. Yeah, I also started Orange Ribbons for Gun Safety, which really focuses more on the advocacy and political stuff. Um, so, you know, Listen, I don't get my daughter back. I don't get to watch her graduate. I don't get to watch her have her first job. Um, but my daughter is going to help other kids achieve their goals. And that's something that I can smile about. Fred, th thanks so much for, for taking the time today and coming on. On a, on a personal note, I, you know, I've been following your work for you know, over two years now, and you're an inspiration to me. I know you're an inspiration to hundreds of activists around the country. My last question for you, how can people find you? How can they follow you? How can they find your work? Well, I appreciate you asking that. You know, listen, the bulk of what I do in terms of getting my voice out there is on Twitter. And that's Fred underscore Guttenberg. Um, Orange Ribbons for Jamie does have a website. Um, and so it's all one word, O-R-A-N-G-E, R-I-B-B-O-N-S-F-O-R-J-A-I-M-E dot org. Um, you know, those are the two best ways. Um, I'm very, very, very active on Twitter, though. If people want to follow me and uh, get a sense. That's the way to do it. Um, I will have a book coming out at the back end of the summer, um, which tells my story. It's called Find the Helpers. It's actually, it's not a book about gun violence and tragedy. It's actually a book about the amazing people who have become a part of my life um, through this process uh, who have lifted me and really a message to anyone going through anything that you can always get through it. If you look for your helpers. That's amazing. We'll, we'll have to have you back when you do your formal book tour. I would love that. 
Awesome. Well, thanks again. And, and to our listeners, uh, be sure to find us online at Millen Politics. Check out our website, millennialpolitics.co. Subscribe to our podcast, either in the Google Play Store, iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Rate us five stars. Leave us a review. That's how people find us. And stay tuned for our next episode. Thanks. Thanks.